Um, can I introduce us first of all? I'm Francis C from Global Net 21. And for those of you who don't know, we're an organisation that started some years ago to try and get people together to discuss some of the big issues of the 21st century. And now we hold about 75 events a year. A lot of those are meetings like this. Some of them are meetings in the House of Commons. And we now do a lot of global webinars as well, which involves an audience from around the world. And what we try and do is we try and collaborate with other groups as well. And at this meeting, I'm pleased to say we're collaborating with the Ethical Society in Conway Hall. And like us, they have a meetup site, so we've advertised it on that. And we also collaborate with the London Debate Network, and I'm sure there are people here from the London Debate Network, because about 30 people, I think, signed up from, from that organisation. So it's great when you have three or four organisations collaborating together, because you get a bigger audience, you get more interest, and you get different people. And that's always great. What we wanted to do at this meeting, because what we agreed when we uh, you know, got, got this room, is that we would do four events a year with Conway Hall, um, and we've done two already around ethics and politics, and we've already done one on ethics and equality, and this one is on ethics and economics. And the next one we've got coming up in four months' time will be ethics and education. Um, but we want to do ethics and economics because in the 21st century, a lot of people think that the, uh, the model but that, that, that traditional economists hold, and by traditional, I mean both the classical neoliberal ones and the Keynesian ones, are probably outdated and that we need to look at a different model of, uh, of, of how we uh, approach economics that considers sustainability on one hand, that looks at wealth creation as being about human potential, not just about material things, and that um, looks at how we live in our own means in a planet that is increasingly becoming shorter resources. And we've got three speakers here to talk to us uh, about this. First, we've got Hugh Atkinson, who is from the South Bank University. You're a professor there. No, no, no. You're, you're a doctor. Oh, uh, but you, you, you do a lot of work around climate change and physical science. Yeah. And so that is an area of specialism for you. And Clive, Clive Menzies, is a, um, a political economist. And he's involved, as many of you know, I'm sure, with the Critical Thinking Group. And we did a, a joint meeting with them last week which are on universal basic income, which was really, really successful. And Clive has some very strong views about how our economics is and how it should be. And then we got Laurie McFarlane. Now, Laurie is from an organisation that we've often had speakers from, the New Economic Foundation. And obviously, they do look at new paradigms in our social, political, and economic life. So what they're going to do is they're going to speak for 10 minutes each, and I'll try and keep them to the 10 minutes if I can. And then we're going to open it up to you to make comments and ask questions. I tend to follow a rule when we do that, and that is I never ask pers a person to ask a second question if there are people up with, with hands up who have not asked a first question, because I try to be fair and involve as many people as possible. So if you're desperately trying to get a second one in and I can't get to you, you'll understand, I hope. Um, anyhow, thank you again all for coming. Uh, it really is packed out and it's going to get hot in here, and you can tell that in a minute because I'm going to take off my coat. Um, so we're going to start with Hugh, and thank you for coming and doing this. Hugh. Thanks very much for inviting me. I think I'm not a monthly economist, so I'll get that out of the way straight away. Uh, I think it's present we're meeting here shortly after two select committee reports have come out. You know, when we're talking about economics that works for people. 
One which branded the owner of uh, Sports Direct Mike Ashley as running 19th century workhouses. And another report is branded, and I won't give him his title, Philip Green, as plundering the assets and destroying the lives of 11,000 workers at British Hospitals. Looking at an economics that works for people, I want to start off by looking at it in terms of the plant. Many of you may be familiar with this term that's been coined now. The fact that human activity has had so much impact on the planet that we now into the new geological era called the Anthropocene. Hard word to pronounce that. Now, linking the whole notion of an economics that works for people is the whole notion of sustainable development. If bear with me for a second, I just want to do a couple of quotes. I'm not going to post this to get I've just brought it along to do a couple of quotes. Now, we're all familiar, aren't we, with the, uh, you know, the Brunton definition, the 1987 uh, UN Commission on Environmental Development, which is the standard definition. Sustainable development is development that meets the needs of current generations while safeguarding the needs of future generations. Yeah? Well, I think that is a totally inadequate anthropocentric view of sustainable development. In the discussions post the Millennium Development Goals, a new definition of uh, sustainable development has emerged. Development that meets the needs of the present while safeguarding the Earth's support system on which the welfare of current and future generations depends. So when we're talking about sustainable development, we need to address the whole notion of planetary boundaries. The Earth's resources are limited, and our new economics has got to take that into account. I think the, the other thing that concerns me about the whole debate about climate change and to some extent sustainability is that it still tends to look at the Earth and the planet as a resource for humans to exploit. It doesn't look at the, in many cases, it doesn't look at the intrinsic value of the environment itself. And one of the things I would argue at the COP21 UN talks about climate change in uh, December, one organisation wasn't there, and that was planet Earth. So I think when we frame the new economics, we need to focus much more on this whole idea of the intrinsic value of the environment. Now, I just want to make a few observations. We're all familiar. You know, the dominant economic paradigm since the 1970s has been that of neoliberalism. So I'm going to pick out a couple of issues there. First of all, you know, the, the general measure of economic growth in this country is GDP, gross domestic product the amount of wealth and resources in the economy. That's meant to measure human progress and happiness, according to both neoliberals and Keynesians, as Francis points out. A couple of things there. There's a report by the Worldwide Fund for Nature. If the world's economy continues to grow into traditional terms, based on northern levels of growth, then we will need five planet Earths to sustain our economic system. That ain't going to happen. And a really interesting, quirky one that I picked up. GDP. Uh, I looked on a website, Business Insider, not Business Insider the drink, but not in C, but an S. Uh, in 2014, the European Union changed the rules on how um, GDP was calculated. And they allowed funds from illegal revenue. So the Italian government, the first quarter of 2014, the Italian economy was in negative growth. But then the Italian government decided to include all the monies from prostitution and the illegal drugs trade, and suddenly the Italian economy started to grow. So that shows you know, the nonsense of GDP. It doesn't really measure real human happiness and well-being. One or two observations. 
At, at the moment, I'm, uh, I'm writing a, trying to write a book on the politics in America and climate change. And I've come up across a number of statistics there. So, for example, okay. American CEOs, chief executive officers of corporations in the United States. If you look at their salaries compared to those of the average worker in the United States of America, how much higher do people think the salaries of CEOs in the United States are compared to the average worker's salary in the United States of America? Actually, I saw this. Absolutely. The, according to research by the AFL-CIO, the American TUC, you get the price, they say 331 times. And if you compare their salaries to the minimum wage worker in the United States, it's over 700 times higher. Right? I think in the 50s it was like 80 or 90 times higher. And if you're telling me that American CEOs are 10 times better than they were in the 50s, they've all got MBAs, but they're not going to manage businesses anymore than they did in the 50s. And the average American worker that hasn't had a pay increase since the 1970s in the United States of America. And I don't know if you saw the headline on the front page of The Guardian today in relation to Britain, that according to figures from the, from the OECD, published by the TUC in Britain, uh, of the OECD countries, only one country is worse off than Greece in terms of wage levels since the credit crash of 2008. It's Greece and Britain. Average wages have gone down 10% in real terms compared to the credit crunch of 2008. So the neoliberal economic system isn't working. If we go across to Africa, to broaden the discussion out to Africa, one of the Millennium Development Goals, one of the Millennium Development Goals was to reduce absolute poverty, I think, by half across sub-Saharan Africa. That target has been largely missed. And one of the main reasons the UN Development Programme gives is because of the impact of climate change on agriculture and on food production, which has led to a big increase in poverty across the range. And we can see that across the range. So, just... In terms of one or two proposals, well, Laurie's sitting next to me from the New Economic Foundation, and you, you can talk much more about the practical work that they do, but I just to pick up one or two things. In 2010, uh, we have the production of the Stiglitz Report, Stiglitz, the famous world economist. Yeah? This, I'm pretty certain, was actually commissioned by Nicolas Sarkozy, when he was the President of France at the time, and before he was attending trials on various kinds of things. And the Stiglitz report, actually, if you look at the Stiglitz report, it actually talked about the limits of GDP as a measure of economic performance and social progress. And the Stiglitz report said there was a clear need to establish other indicators for well-being and happiness. Now, that was a report commissioned by the President of France. But where has that report gone? Seems to be gathering dust in the Elysee Paris Palace. And I think that's one of the problems. We all have, as I was saying earlier, we love, there's lots of good ideas, we know the problems, we know the solutions to many degrees, but it's getting those mainstream into the mainstream agenda, which is a real challenge. Well, two minutes. Okay, I'm doing five. One other interesting thing, uh, I say interesting, but this is interesting. Robert Reich, who used to be the Labour Secretary to uh, Bill Clinton, he wrote a book, Aftershock, The Next Economy and America's Future. 
uh, he argued, as many of us do, that economics should not be viewed as growth in itself. The, the personal material well-being is important, but we need to go beyond that. And he came up with a phrase which I like. He talked of the consumption of public improvements that benefit us all. The need for less air pollution, the need for better schools, the need for better healthcare. Those are the kind of measures of growth that we need to measure, and which themselves will create jobs as well. So, just by way of conclusion, just a couple of points. I think what we need to do is to move away from what I would call the snolly Doster culture. Anybody familiar with the word snolly Doster? It's a great American word in political science, which means selfish, self-interested, only looking at your own interests. We need to move away from that culture. And we do need a radical reconfiguration of the way we both do economics and politics. The problem is, as I was talking to you earlier, politicians, are they willing to say to voters, you need to spend less? luxury goods, you don't need the latest iPhone 7. Are we prepared to do that? Are we prepared to make those brave political decisions? That's the problem. That's the challenge. A colleague of mine, Stuart Wilkes, in his book A.A.T., he did some research into this and he concluded that democracy was really, really, really bad at delivering sustainability and tackling climate change, but every other system of government was much, much worse. So the key is to widen participation. I think one of the key things on there we've got critical thinking. Critical thinking is crucial to this. We need to work at it and people need to think critically and to not just accept that there is no alternative. There is one and in reality we have no alternative to paraphrase Margaret Thatcher but to pursue a new kind of economics. Thank you very much. That was dead on time. Thank you. <laughs> Unlike Southern region, I was going to say, on the way over here, I experienced the classic example of neoliberal economics. It's called Southern Region Trains. When, when I work with academics and they're on time, they always get in there. Thank you very much. Um, no, okay, so you, you talked about critical thinking, and Clive is the, the person who is involved in critical thinking, and I agree with you. Critical thinking is essential because I look upon critical it's disappeared. I look at um, <laughs> I, I look at critical thinking as the ability to disappear, but apart from that, I look upon it as the way in which you challenge your own assumptions, you're skeptical about what you believe in, you never take your own beliefs too seriously because you've actually investigated them, you know, deep down. Anyhow, uh, Clive is going to tell us a bit about uh, his view now from a critical um, thinker perspective. And I'll start, start the stop clock. Right, I just need to conquer the technology. Sit in the ring. Which of these buttons takes it forward or back? Anybody know? None of them. None of them. That might explain. Okay, I'll use the keyboard. Okay. Um, critical thinking is not me. It is a collection of people, and we've been synthesizing and collecting research and information from around the world. So this analysis that I'm going to present very briefly is the synthesis of millions of man-hours of thought, work, etc. Um, and principally, what critical thinking came together to do was to try and work out who rules, how, and why and what we should do about it. And what, from our research, what appears to be the crux of this 
is that we have a dominant ruling class which emerged very on in civilization. Ooh, gone one too far. Thank you. Um, which is by domination. And it started off with the domination of nature, agriculture, to produce a su surplus, and very quickly morphed into the domination of humans, initially by slavery using force, and then in time it was uh, actually using coercion, depriving people of the means to life and providing them the only means of, of life was to actually enslave themselves to a system. And today, and for the last hundred years or so, we're enslaved by conditioning. In other words, our beliefs, our thoughts have been in inculcated since birth to make us comply with this system. And the power thank you. And the power of this system comes from three fundamental flaws in our thinking. And the first is that we've been deprived access to land, resources, and all the commons. Everything has a price these days, even knowledge and nature. And it's that deprivation of the means to life which particularly accelerated in the 18th century. Lorik? Thanks. Um, which drove everybody into factories. So we moved from slavery, where you actually were shackled and you were visibly enslaved to a system, to coercion, where you couldn't survive unless you went to work in the factories. You were deprived of the means to life, the commons were enclosed, and that was your means of survival. And then the third element, which came on top of this, is usury. And this came around, I mean, usury has been around a, long, a lot longer, but in the 15th century, the idea of double-entry bookkeeping actually obscured what, what interest on money actually is. It's theft. It transfers money from those who need it, or wealth from those who need it, to those who've got more than they need. And that, those are the essential elements. Hugh talked about sustainability. The biggest driver in accelerating growth and consumption of resources is our in slavery to interest. We're like addicts. We cannot live without it. We believe we cannot exist without interest, and yet it is the mechanism of our own enslavement. So there, is a, there are many other aspects to interest which I won't go into, but one of the principal functions of interest, Laurie, thanks is the power it gives to bankers. They can create money from nothing. They do create money from nothing. This is no longer controversial. The IMF have confirmed it. The Bank of England have confirmed it. Confirmed it. Professor Richard Werner at the University of Southampton has done an academic paper, and it is indisputable. Loans become, come before deposits. Fractional reserve banking is a myth that actually doesn't work in practice. And it's this ability to create money from nothing which gives bankers the power over everything. They get, have power over media, academia, um, military, politics. Everything is controlled by money. So uh, the shape of our current political economy, Laurie, thanks, is this. We have a structural elite which, using all the levers of power at their disposal, conduct 
wars, ecocide, and divide us. And it's not that there's an individual planning all this, it's the nature of the system. The system has emerged to drive these things. And this is what's actually driving the system, and the system in turn impinges on the seven billion people who create the wealth on the planet, and the interest, taxes, and rents all go back to the structural elite. Now obviously the elevated cattle, the politicians, corporate CEOs and all the rest of it get a share of the cake, but at the end of the day, it's the system that drives money, wealth, power, all the way to the top. So we cannot look at economics in isolation. Economics has been corrupted as a science. Most economists have no understanding of the fundamental nature of our economic system that is, is abusive, corrupted, corruptive, and it serves the needs of very few people, as Hugh has amply demonstrated. So that's enough about where we are. What do we do about it? Now, one of the inculcated beliefs we've had from the earliest days is a belief in authority. We are not clever enough to rule ourselves. We need experts. We need people to represent us. We need to abdicate authority and autonomy to other people. This is a fundamental problem. And until we address that, then we cannot address the other problems because it's our belief in authority that makes us assume that we're not clever enough to realize that interest is bad and that we should have access to the commons. So we need to get away from this idea of the great and the good. They are the great in some senses, in so much as they have the greatest power and wealth, but they are definitely bad for us. The second issue we have to do have to address is to recover our birthright, which is our entitlement to the means to life. Just forget everything that's on the planet today. A creature such as a human being is born today automatically by that very act or manifestation, they have the right to the means to life. That has been deprived by our economic system. And until we grasp that, Everything else is just moving the deck chairs on the Titanic. And finally, we have to give up our addiction to interest. By giving a time value to money, we are discounting our futures. We are discounting lives. We're discounting the planet. And it is these three fundamental things. That's all it takes. No rulers. And it's, behind all this, there's a lot of research to back it up, and I, I've not got time to go into all the references. But we need no rulers. We need to share the value of the commons equitably in the form of a citizen's dividend is one practical means of doing so, and by taxing land, that's one first step. And we need to get away from this idea of interest because it concentrates power. So... Can this be done? Last slide. Our society is geared towards messiahs, leaders. Everybody looks to the next person who's going to provide them with salvation. Uh, and we, we build up these people with great expectations and they always disappoint. Ed Miliband, 
Bernie Sanders in the States, Jeremy Corbyn, no doubt, who's a very nice chap, and I'm sure he's sincere and all the rest of it, but the system will not let him succeed, irrespective of whether he remains true to his ideals. So until we abandon this idea that we need to self-promote, and it's my idea that's going to be the one that solves it, we shouldn't care whose ideas solve it. We need to solve them together between us, openly, equally discussing, conversing, exploring. And that's what we're doing in critical thinking. We're trying to engage as many people in this conversation because we don't need the institutional hierarchy that has brought us to this place to get us out of it. It is all the people in this room and the seven billion people beyond by communicating that we will solve our problems and I'm done in nine minutes. Thank you. Wow. <laughs> okay, thanks very much. That was great. Um, Laurie, as I said, uh, as I said earlier, is from NEF, the New Economic Foundation. Now, they're an organisation, a think tank, if you like, that really started to sort of think outside the box to look at how you can bring all the social sciences and disciplines together in some sort of holistic or systematic way. And so they, uh, you know, over the years brought a lot of new thought into the disciplines of social science, social care, of health, of housing and of economics generally. So Laurie's going to give you his take on what he thinks the new economics is what he thinks we should be looking at in the 21st century and the way we should be going forward. So, Laurie, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so, as I uh, was just said, I'm from the New Economics Foundation. Um, we're a sort of independent think tank. Um, incidentally, our motto is uh, economics as if people and planet mattered. So, uh, it's a pleasure to be invited along to take part in, in this discussion which is very relevant. Um, I want to spend the 10 minutes so that I have just outlining what I see as some of the, the main problems that economics as a, as a discipline has developed um, in, in its approach and why that matters in, in the big picture of things and why we do, in my view, need uh, a new economics. Um, and hopefully in the discussion after we can, we can have a bit of discussion around um, you know, what that entails practically in, in terms of policies. Today it seems to me that economics uh, as, a, as a discipline is in a bit of a state of a crisis. Um, we've just been through the, the biggest downturn since the Great Depression and for the most part economists uh, didn't see it coming or for many people haven't managed to adequately um, explain it. Um, as we've heard we've seen a prolonged period of stagnation in living standards for uh, majority of people with the, the rewards of productivity and, and, and growth increasingly accumulating in the hands of, of few. As we've also heard, climate change is posing a, an imminent threat to our species and uh, our, our natural environment is being uh, depleted and polluted more uh, than ever before. But meanwhile, the overarching aim of uh, policymakers uh, appears to be to try and effectively get back to, to business as usual uh, as quickly as possible. Uh, and by business as usual, that really means how things were bobbing along before the financial crisis, sort of 2 to 3% GDP growth and, and that kind of thing. And although these uh, other issues are kind of sort of acknowledged in the background as issues, they're seen as sort of separate rather than being an absolutely integral 
part of this business as usual model which, uh, which we're trying to get back to. And I don't think it's fair or accurate to put the blame of this solely on the economics uh, profession, but I do think it has played uh, a role, as I think I'll come on to explain. One of the things more important, though, is that if we are going to address these uh, these big issues that we've talked about tonight, that I do think that uh, economics needs to evolve and needs to evolve quite uh, rapidly. So, what are the the main problems? Well, there's a great quote uh, that I like by the late economist, uh, Cambridge economist Joan Robinson, who said, "The purpose of studying economics is not to acquire a set of ready-made answers to economic questions, but to learn how to avoid being deceived by economists." Um, and this has quite a, a, on a personal level, a, a resonance, but also I think on a wider societal level, because I think society to an extent has been uh, deceived by economists. And not only that, I think that uh, economists have managed to deceive uh, themselves. Um, and I'll to be clear, I'm not talking about every single economist or anything like it. I'm talking about the dominant economic paradigm that currently dominates in academia and, um, and in policy, as, as, we've already, as we've already heard. So what are the main problems? Well, I see four mainly. Uh, firstly, uh, strange things happened, um, and that there's really two quite separate things with economics. There's the sort of theory that you get if you go to university and learn, and then there's actually how the economy actually functions uh, in the real world, when they're very, two very distinct uh, things, which is quite remarkable. Um, if you want to be a really respected economist, uh, you know, in all the top journals in academia, you really have to spend your time doing a lot of theoretical abstract modeling, which might be uh, mathematically brilliant, but actually bears very, very little resemblance to what actually happens in the real world. Um, and it usually entails abstracting or ignoring from a whole bunch of real world phenomena. Um, and just an example, one of the things that at NEF that we've been doing quite a lot of work on has already been touched upon um, is that remarkably most uh, economic models in the past have uh, either got wrong or completely ignored the role of um, money and debt and, and money creation, which you would have thought would be quite an important part of a modern capitalist economy, but actually is really not featured at all in most economists' thinking or models. The second thing, I think, is that economists have managed to deceive themselves, really, uh, into thinking that it's somehow beyond uh, political or ethical consideration, that it's sort of a value-free topic, like to sort of compare themselves to the, the natural sciences. Um, if you like, and I think this is this is uh, wrong and is uh, really not helpful um, at all. I think the main reason for this is that it's come to a stage where the current institutions, so the current modern capitalist economy and the institutions and social relations that that entails, are sort of taken as a given, as a constant, as something that are there and not to be changed and sort of worked within. The reality is that many of these things are, uh, are actually not natural at all. So markets are uh, inherently political constructs. They're a function of many of the uh, apparatus of the state, things like prop property rights, um, the legal system that entails, laws, regulations. And that many of the sort of market outcomes, um, far from being a sort of natural phenomenon, are actually a, a, a part of systemic design um, by the sort of rules of the game um, and just, just an example, there's plenty of things that back in history used to be part of, we used to have markets in, we used to have markets in people, in slavery, in child labour. 
And now that we don't have them, there's no, that's not because there's an economic theory that says there shouldn't be. It's because as a society, we made an ethical and political judgment that we shouldn't have that. But that's made a huge impact on the economy and how we run our economy. Um, and I think that this ignoring of the sort of bigger institutional rules of the game in economics is a, is a real barrier to progress that we that really need to get around. Um, I think there's also been a, a, a sort of a false view, as we talked about wealth creation, as to how wealth is actually sort of created and distributed in the economy. Uh, there's a view that there's sort of a, you know, the talented individual or company who has a good idea, um, and that then they, they sort of compete in the private marketplace and sort of generate this wealth, and the government then sort of taxes it away um, and spends it. And I think this misses a really big picture uh, component here, which is that you can have the best idea in the world, but unless you can actually employ uh, people uh, who have sort of access to good public education, you're not going to get far. If you don't have access to good infrastructure, roads, internet, telecommunications, and all the rest of it, uh, you're not going to get very far either. Without the legal system, property rights, contracts, and all the rest of it, you're not going to get very far either. And as already touched upon, I think natural resources here are a really important uh, element to this as well. They weren't uh, created or invented by any sort of individual uh, or company. Similarly, you're probably going to be depending on a lot of technological advances which uh, weren't, which were created by someone else, and actually, historically, many of the great breakthroughs in technology have actually have their origins in government programs or publicly funded programs, things like the internet, microprocessing, aviation, and all the rest of it. And I think that the reality is that wealth creation is a, is a collective enterprise, and we really, in sort of dominant economic thinking, really miss that big picture, and I think that really impairs our ability to think about policy solutions and that sort of thing. Um, and lastly, as we've already touched upon, I think, and I hope we'll come on and talk about it more, I think that it fails to recognise that the economy is actually a subsystem of a much broader, wider natural environment, and we sort of ignore the physical reality that that, uh, that, that actually entails. And we have this underlying assumption of um, you know, continued and indefinite growth, which is kind of problematic in a world of, of fixed and finite um, resources. And actually, if we continue as the sort of business as usual uh, program that, that we seem to trying to get back to, um, we can't do that without causing uh, irreparable damage to our environment and, and ecosystem. So I think we really need to um, see the economy as part of a wider holistic part of this uh, environment. Um, and when we're thinking about what we need to do with the economy, to always place that within the natural uh, environmental limits that we can't go beyond. And key to that, I think we've already mentioned, is really re-evaluating the measures of success uh, that we use to judge uh, our economy. And we talked about GDP, and this is something that at NEF we've done a lot of work on, is looking at measures beyond GDP um, to try and get a better picture of, of success, rather than just focusing purely on pounds and pence. And just to wrap up, does any of this, you know, why does this matter, these, these things that I've talked about? The reality is that economics profession has a huge amount of influence uh, over how uh, our societies run, over policy making. And I think we are at a crossroads just now. And if we are going to really deal with these big issues that we've been talking about, um, then we really do need to start to think about uh, how we build a new economy that works for people and planet. Uh, and not just in theory, but also in practice as well. Um, and that's what we're trying to be doing uh, at NEF by, um, by thinking about these issues and how, how can we actually develop that in practice. So um, I hope we can come on to talk about that a bit more in the discussion. Thank you. Okay, thanks. <laughs>
I'm going to ask, actually, before we ask questions, um, is there a volunteer who would take this mic around to people who will put their hands up? Anybody who wants to be in the room, we might press, and you do. Oh, fantastic. Thank you. That's great. Okay. I mean, those were really three good introductions. And I always find it interesting, you know, Adam Smith, who uh, was the founder of modern economics, never belonged to an economics department. They, de they called it in those days political economy. Um, because Adam Smith was a very ethical man. I mean, he looked upon the problems of society as an ethical one, and his economics was subsumed under that. And also, I mean, we called this economics as if people mattered, and we didn't actually take it off of the NEF uh, um, uh, site. We took it off of where it came from originally, the subtitle of Fritz Schumacher's book, Small is Beautiful, which is economics as if people mattered, where, you know, he argued that we should try to organize society as if people did matter, and we should organize the technology and the social systems uh, appropriately uh, so that it fitted what people could um, cope with. Uh, economics has tended to abstract it, taken away from that, and I think we've heard a lot about that today. And yeah, I'm sure all of you will have things that you want to say, so this is the time where we open it up to you for questions or comments. If you make comments, try not to make them speeches, uh, try to make them as short as you can. Um, but don't be afraid to make comments, please do that. Okay, so who would like to start? I haven't had you start for a long time, so this is great. <laughs> Welcome back. Thank you very much. Yes, it must be at least four years since I came to one of these meetings. Thank you, Francis. Uh, my point really is focusing on the solutions. Um, I, I liked what I heard, and I really want to move it towards what can we do? And one of the things that struck me over the last few years is that the key financial process that keeps the current system in place is taxation. And um, if you look back in history, all the major revolutions have started with tax rebellions. That's when big changes occur in any society. So Magna Carta started with the tax rebellion. Indian, uh, the American independence came about because of tax rebellion. The French, Russian, and English revolutions all started because of tax rebellions. And finally, uh, we got rid of Mrs. Thatcher because of a tax rebellion. Now, what I'm really interested in is what your views are on the use of tax rebellions so that we get taxes paid by the people voluntarily for those things they want, rather than us giving all our money, £10,000 per person per year, to a man in the Chancellor of the Exchequer, uh, and he decides on what it's going to be spent. And if we reverse that process, I think we can have a dramatic, fantastic effect on society, and I'd like to hear your views on that. Okay, let, let's take three comments first for questions, and then we'll uh, come back to the panel. You had your hand up first. Eric. The um, 331 times multiple uh, between um, the workforce and CEOs, I think originated um, with Jensen's book, Theory of the Firm, which was 1976, which pointed out that if you give uh, chief executives major shares in the company, they will drive profits and, and that has resulted in all the manipulation we now see of the uh, uh, share prices um, 
artificial ways of boosting the share price, largely because CEOs and top management will benefit. So um, perhaps you can comment on that. Okay, and uh, this lady next, I'll get you in a second, okay? Thank you. I'm just thinking about some um, possible solutions for the future. I was wondering if the panel could say what they thought about ethical banking, whether it had a role to play. Okay, right. So there was your question, which, what was the, the kernel of your question? What was the kernel of it? Um, do you uh, agree that 1976, put by Jensen, was the initiator of many of the problems we see with capitalism now? So in the 1970s. Okay. Let, let's, uh, do you want to take that question first? Well, I'm, not, I'm not familiar with the specific, but you mentioned, but the general point about how uh, you could argue that uh, what companies seem to be interested in now is instead of long-term sustainable investment is more short-term profit and short-term gain and quick bucks for the shareholders. I think that's definitely the culture. I mean, if we look at, I think we need to be careful when we look at capitalism, because there's no doubt from the mid-1940s through to the 1970s, certainly in North America and in Western Europe, it was a golden age for many people in terms of economic prosperity. You can't deny that. Many people got great material benefits. But since the 70s, that process has benefited fewer and fewer people. So I agree entirely that that short-term gains is... And that's what the credit crunch was all about, wasn't it? These securitised assets, all of that. Uh, sort of linked to that. I read something... Uh, you know, the bookmakers just before the Brexit vote uh, were saying that staying in was the firm favour and share prices went up as a result. I've read some articles that senior figures in hedge funds were laying heavy bets with bet uh, betters, with their bookmakers, to push the price up. They took their own, sorry, they took their own private exit polls and they were selling all those shares by about five past ten on the night. You know, so that's just one more example of that. And one particular hedge fund manager made £200 million that particular night from that venture. So that ties into that. Okay, and let, let's maybe get the three of you to go up to, to answer the question about tax rebellion. I suppose in a way that's part of a wider question yeah. is how do you make change happen? I mean, does it take a Great Depression like the 1930s shift paradigms? Or can something like a tax rebellion you know, which was mentioned also have an effect and that it actually shifts uh, people who are in positions of authority and power, particularly economists, change their views. Uh, I mean, let's start with you, Clive, on that. Um, well, undoubtedly, tax is one of the means by which wealth is extracted. And I would argue that it is, it is not they that are the problem, it is we who are the problem. And until we withdraw consent to comply with the system, it will continue. So I'm all in favour of taking any action wherever possible, as long as it doesn't jeopardise your own security, uh, to withhold taxes, withhold rents, withhold interest. Somebody asked about ethical banking. Show me some. As long as there's interest in the system, there is no ethical banking. It's a, it's a misnomer. And finally, on um, the shareholder uh, point that was raised, 
unless you look at the fundamentals of this system, and it is a system, and it's an integrated political economy, something here affects something over there, unless you look at the system as an integrated whole, you will always come up with solutions which have unintended consequences. If you try to put in a maximum wage, that will have unintended consequences. You have to get to the root of inequality, which is interest on money and deprived, being deprived of what's rightfully ours. It's not complicated. The Rockefeller Foundation endowed the Chicago Business School to create the shock doctrine, privatization and all the rest of it. I, with all due deference to qualified economists, they've been brainwashed into a very narrow view of the way the world works. And until they're prepared to challenge those fundamental beliefs that have been inculcated, Laurie said, you know, what you learn in economics degree has no relevance to the real world. I would go much further. The likes of Stiglitz and these other people don't get it. Keynes didn't get it. All of these people that we look to as the great gurus of economics have no fundamental understanding. And Adam Smith had some fairly flawed thinking in what he was talking about. The, the market will, will ensure that everybody gets the best outcome. Well, we know the problem with that. Yeah. Okay, Laurie, so if, if we're going to have this sort of paradigm shift we want, do we need think tanks like NEF or do we need a tax rebellion? <laughs> well, uh, I think we need both. I mean, I think uh, all for uh, tax rebellions or, or that kind of thing. Um, but I think really there is no sort of single approach. I think you have, at the one level, you have a, you know, a, a sort of idea generating sort of policy type framework thing which we do a bit of but also you absolutely need social movements, bottom down action, uh, bottom up action sorry, um, and organising as well and informing and educating which I think is part of what we're doing having these discussions tonight. Just on the particular point about tax, if I, if I did understand correctly, did you say that people should just pay what they want to voluntarily? Because I think the problem there is if you do that then you get people who hold most of the money voluntarily not wanting to, to pay much. And, not being able to have much. Uh... No, I really meant it from the point of view of the individual choosing of what they want their money spent. So if, for instance, we have £10,000 per person per year, which is spent by the Chancellor on our behalf, I want that reversed so that 50 million taxpayers can decide how they want their money spent on the necessary 25, 30 projects which need to be paid for. Mm -hmm. Democratisation. Just a, a quick point on the, on the uh, shareholder, uh, I think this is a really important point because I think at the moment what we are seeing is some of the crazy stuff that boosting stock prices like share, share buybacks and all the rest of it. I think it's just a symptom that the, the sort of shareholder capitalism model which is, has been dominant recently is uh, isn't actually working that well and we often talk about sort of capitalism eating itself um, and, the, and these sorts of ways. Um, and again it comes back to the sort of rules on the game. That is a legal form of company that is predominant at the moment. There's no reason why that has to stay that way. And I think there's other models out there. Um, rather than having CEOs have an interest in companies, I think they work a lot better where actually people who work in them have a stake uh, in co-ops and and mutuals and that kind of thing. And just very briefly, uh, ethical banking uh, is, a, is an interesting one. I think the talk of ethical banking just now is, um, is a little bit misleading, uh, to say the least. But certainly one thing that we're doing a lot of work on is, on is on banking reform and monetary reform. And I think it's clear that the UK at the moment, banking uh, is just not working at, at all for anyone. 
dominated by a handful of huge global multinational corporations who basically um, create money to speculate in financial markets and fuel real estate bubbles. So I think reforming banking is absolutely pivotal to all of what we're talking about here, developing a new economy to ensure that um, we have money that is created and channeled into where we want it to go in sustainable projects rather than these sorts of issues. But we're certainly miles away from that today. I mean, Hugh, do you want to respond to that point about ethical banking? I mean, is, is ethical banking possible, or do we need something more root and branch in terms of reform? Well, I certainly think much better banking is possible, and that can contain a large ethical dimension. I mean, I'm not a banker, which is probably good. Uh, if you look at the credit crunch in 2008, you know, the, the German banking system, which is much more regionalised and where there was much more focus there on actually investment in industry, industrial strategy, was far less exposed to that global crisis than the British banking system. So different countries have different banking systems. Can I just, the thing about tax, for me, I think one, to, even to create a sustainable new economics, one needs to have a pragmatic incrementalist approach. We need to start from where we are. Uh, I, I don't see how, if you break it out and individualise taxation and say to 50 million people, how do you want to spend the, the money that we've raised? I think you get into all the kind of problems you get in the United States with all those propositions where should we cut property tax by 20%? That's cut, and it's the poor and the disenfranchised who lose out. I think you need collectivist approaches to a fairer taxation system, which is very difficult. And one, just one thing in terms of the, you know, what, how are we going to get to a new paradigm? Well, the Second World War created a new paradigm in 1945. The global oil crisis of the 70s created a new paradigm. By all logic, you would have thought the global credit crunch of 2008, when in Britain, cash machines were in five hours of closing down across the country, weren't they? You thought that might have shaken the system. But neoliberalism proved itself to be incredibly robust and strong there. You know, and that's the challenge, isn't it? It's a very robust, robust, strong system. Despite all its faults and its major inequalities, it still remains very robust. Okay, <coughs> you had to have that. Oh, yeah. You have to travel far this time. Yeah. Um, I was interested about the interest-free money. Um, uh, two points. Um, I don't quite know what you mean exactly interest because at the moment there's inflation. Now, one way of overcoming inflation is to get a higher interest rate on the money from the banks. So you do need, in that sense, you do need interest at the moment in order to overcome the inflation rate. If your idea is that there'll be no inflation, well, that's a slightly different matter. The other thing is, you know, you're saying the banks create money. Yeah, banks create electronic money. They don't create actually money itself. It's the Bank of England that creates money, which is a very small amount of the total amount. Now, are you actually saying that you want to transfer the creation of money from private banks to the government? Or are you, no, I'm just wondering exactly where you uh, sort of putting, um, you know, this sort of, the creation of money, is it going to be transferred, saying that private banks don't, are not able to uh, create money by electronically, but the government creates the money, uh, and how? And if the government's creating the money, there's also the danger that the governments could overstep the mark, which the Weimar Republic during the, um, uh, the hyperinflation in Germany, because they were printing money in order to... Uh, 
help workers when the um, the Tsar uh, province was um, they went on strike, and the government printed a lot of money to help them. So there's always that danger. Okay. So let's take that question first, and we'll come to some others. Free money, what do you mean by that? And who in your system does create the money? Right, okay. Um, first of all, anybody who will, is interested in interest, to, if you'll forgive the pun, um, should read Margaret Kennedy's Interest and Inflation-Free Money. There is a direct corre correlation between interest and inflation. As long as you match the money supply to the needs of the economy, there should be no inflation, and therefore you need no interest. Because interest effectively is gains, gaining at somebody else's expense. In terms of money creation, your first, your first suggestion or, or your surmise that perhaps we get the government to do this starts, starts to um, fall down on the, fir uh, the first fence. Because the first thing I said was we must lose this belief in authority and a requirement for governance, a government as such. Now, the, we, everybody in this room and everyone alive today is in a unique position deprived of all previous generations. We, we have access to the understanding of how we can do this. With blockchain chain technology, we don't need to centralize money creation. We can have devolved money creation, which becomes neutral. And to go back to the idea of banking, banking becomes a, a simple utility for transactions. There are, there are many different ways of doing this that don't involve having central authority. Uh, but it requires us to work out, to understand that economics is not as complex as everybody likes to make us think, and that we can work this out for ourselves. It's not a problem. Okay, gentlemen at the back. Sorry, I can't see. Uh, yeah, um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, uh, somebody mentioned earlier in the in the talk about uh, thinking outside the box. Uh, well, in the work that I've been doing for some years now, I've come to the conclusion we need to actually throw away the box. Um, uh, now, one of the questions that I mean, I mean, it's it's a very interesting time we live in. Obviously, the 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 the, the Brexit vote has has actually allowed us to talk again, which is such a good thing. Um, but uh, one of the things that uh, that puzzles me, and um, is that even now, most people, as far as I can see, are not asking the questions that need to be asked. Uh, one or two I've heard in this room, um, but we're, we're still in a, in a situation where uh, economists and people who talk about econ economies and things think that um, economists and economies can uh, solve the problem of the economics, and I don't think they can at all. Uh, it has to be done from outside. Now, what, what I would like to ask is that, in my view, something like uh, 20 million jobs that we do in the UK alone are a complete and utter waste of time, energy, materials, and uh, not only human energy, but uh, fossil energy. Uh, so is there anybody really questioning, not 
uh, whether we have full employment or blah, 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 but what it is we actually do and do we need them. Are the work, is the work that we do generally uh, uh, useful as far as human beings are concerned? And my conclusion is no, most of it isn't. Okay, we'll see if they disagree with you in a minute. Uh, let's, let's get this lady here. Hi. Uh, I was wondering, you were talking about uh, the taxes that you guys suggest that uh, regular people should withhold, but I think that we didn't really address that uh, the upper classes uh, also withhold their taxes in, uh, in these offshore tax havens. And I would like your opinion about how can these be stopped and how can a structure be created where uh, companies and individuals won't find a way to uh, create new tax havens somewhere else. Thank you. Okay, and uh, Evan. Uh, I don't need a microphone. I'm used to talking to someone. No, take the microphone. Uh, out, otherwise, you okay. recorded. Okay. Regarding the gentleman over there who's talking about tax, I absolutely agree with him. We should abandon tax. And there's a meeting in the House of Parliament on November 22nd, uh, which I've arranged on behalf of Hampstead Labour Party, where a, a famous professor is talking about getting rid of tax. We have what we would call personal investment portfolios. We invest our tax ourselves online with a huge amount of tutoring. And that will be, and you put it essentially where you want to put it. And I think that could revolutionize people's approach to tax. We get rid of that filthy word tax. It's a personal investment portfolio where you invest your money and your returns are a fantastic health service, a fantastic education service, and maybe with that. Use almost privatization tools within that system. And very finally, the question I want to ask all of you, I mean, it's very interesting stuff that you say, without doubt. But so what? It's, it's, it's cloud cuckoo land. It's pie in the sky, unfortunately, until you get it out there. And I think what the, where the big effort and energy is needed is getting these fantastic ideas and new thinking out there. I want to ask how you're doing that. Okay. Um, that's a very simple question to answer, of course. Um, uh, right, let, let's take, let's take those, those three questions. Um, Maybe, uh, you know, you don't have to answer all of them, but, I mean, you, you I know, have done a lot of work in, in that about, about jobs and employment. Uh, and, and the point that was raised about, you know, there are lots of jobs that we don't need, and, you know, we actually recreate things, uh, uh, you know, we dig halls and then fill them up again, essentially. Um, I mean, how do we decide exactly what we need and, and, and who makes that decision? <laughs> I think uh, really interesting comment. I think to to extent I agree. I mean, I think a lot of the, the work um, there is there is done. The phrase I think David Graeber talked about bullshit jobs um, that largely we're just doing it um, for for not much reason. I think there's a couple of things here. I mean, John Maynard Keynes back in I think it was 1930 or whatever uh, predicted that by now um, you know we would really be working you know 15 hours uh, because of the the wealth. Uh, growth in wealth and productivity that most people could live a life of leisure. Um, and actually, he wasn't wrong about growth and wealth, he's sort of actually almost done what he said. What, what, he's, what he was wrong about is how we've chosen to, uh, to use these increases in productivity. Uh, we've, we've chosen to use them by effectively uh, consuming more uh, and working more effectively. 
Uh, and in actual fact, we could be using the productivity gains to actually keep our sort of consumption level relatively stable uh, and work much, much less. Um, and I think in terms of practical level, what, what, what we could do about that, we've done quite a bit of work on um, shorter working weeks, and there's a program sort of, as an example, 21-hour working week or less. Um, to try and sort of reduce the amount of time that people actually have to spend. Because at the moment we've got a lot of people who are, have a lot of time on their hands who are unemployed or don't have any money. We've got a lot of people who have lots of money and don't have time. Try and sort of spread that out, out of it. But as well as that, I think, uh, this is where things like basic income uh, come in. Um, which I know, uh, I think Clive was talking about. Because what something like that can do, uh, the benefit of that is that gives people that security, gives people that sta stable foundation and where they can actually don't need to worry necessarily about uh, going out and getting into these sort of bullshit jobs to try and put food on the table. It gives them a bit of freedom and breathing space to actually pursue what they really like to do um, in life. Um, so I think so I think they are the kinds of things that maybe come into the field we're talking about. We incidentally held a meeting in the House of Commons on universal basic income, which is, was even more packed than this one. So there is a really, really growing interest in that, which is quite, quite encouraging in a way. Do you want to take a question up about tax avoidance? I mean, that's a, a real, real problem. Two together. Well, first, can I just address the... I dropped back in my chair when you talked about somebody from the Labour Party opposing the abolition of tax and individual <laughs> personal investment proposals. The, the whole bedrock of the welfare state, which was, you know, the National Health Service, which was in many ways to make the new economics of its day, was based on the collectivist progressive form of income tax. And that still, for me, has to form the basis of any future new economic system based on sustainability. Yeah, this, is, this obliges them to invest, by the way. They're not, it's not voluntary. They just choose where to invest. Yeah, okay, go on. It sounds to me more like there's a school of the new right public choice, an extreme form of marketisation, which I think is the last thing that we need to do here. Uh, in terms of tax evasion, well, well, this, I mean, all governments come into power saying they're going to clamp down on both tax evasion and tax avoidance. And we have those revelations with the Panama Papers that burst into the headlines. We still have these British territories. I think, was, is it the British Virgin Islands which still doesn't publish full yes. accounts of what it's up to? They should be forced to do that. But you, the HMRC, though, has been massively under-resourced, hasn't it? It's been cut back. And these, I'm amazed today we hear you know, Amazon, which is one of the major uh, tax avoiders in this country, is now gone into a partnership with the Department of Transport on uh, drones to deliver our CDs to us. It's a huge, huge challenge. I don't, I don't, it's, it's not something I've got an easy answer to, but it's the, the power of these global corporations. It's so hard to challenge that. Can I just talk a bit about work as well? Uh, is work, is most work useful? Well, I can talk, academics probably we don't do much useful, but at least it stops us pestering ordinary people in the streets. Uh, but basic income is an interesting idea, but for a lot of people, work is a, is a social process. It may be rubbish jobs, but it's a social process that gives them value, and they interact with other human beings. In the 1930s, I mean, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt said it's much better to pay people to dig a hole and then fill it in than to have them idle. So I think these are complicated issues. And how do we decide what's a useful job and what isn't? It's very problematic. 
Okay, well, let's, let's uh, take the last question because we still have one more question that hasn't been answered. Can I, and can can I just, just answer those? Well, I'm going to come to you, but I was going to say, could you, you yeah, do that? But I was going to then say, could you briefly, each one of you, but briefly say, answer Evan's point that how do you get this sure. new thinking out? Not just in terms of the general awareness to the general public, but to decision makers as well. Starting with you. I mean, basically, all of these questions tie together. I mean, certainly, if, if you're on the internet, go and look for a video called Humans Need Dot Apply. The reality is jobs are disappearing, not just manual jobs, but all jobs. Artificial <laughs> intelligence, robotics, automation. We do not need the number of people. And jobs are priced on supply and demand. And there's no demand, so clearly there's, a job isn't going to give you the means to life. So a citizen's dividend, our rightful share of the commons, its time has come. Secondly, if you're actually taking the money from the commons, the, wealth, the surplus wealth of the commons, and distributing that in terms of paying for public services and a citizen's dividend, you cannot hide that offshore. You cannot take the Duke of Westminster's estate in London and put it in the Virgin Islands. And it's worth knowing that actually the city of London is the biggest offshore centre in the world. So tax havens and all that would disappear if we actually taxed the commons and distributed the value of the commons to fund public services and that's all. Okay, so how do you get the ideas out? The ideas are getting out. Um, it's from a very low base. When I first joined Occupy five years ago and started talking about money creation, people used to look at me as if I was, had a screw loose. That is now in the mainstream, everybody understands it. Citizens' dividend, similarly, wasn't on the map, is now on the map. Land value tax is, is gaining traction. All of these ideas, and now, at long last, people are beginning to question the whole purpose of government. The terrorist state the state and terror are synonymous. The more we spend on security, the more terror we have, the more arms, the more wars. It is the state that is the problem. That is the final piece of the jigsaw that has to fall into place. But the only way this is going to get out is by you talking to friends, colleagues, every opportunity you, you get, because the mainstream is yet to catch up. But we can lead them rather than follow them. Okay, and, and Hugh, from an academia point of view, I mean, you're surrounded by academics who take a traditional model. How do you, I mean, and that's quite important in terms of economics and how you run society because they often advise government. Yeah. I mean, do you find where you are, you're an uphill struggle against academics who take that traditional view? How do you get the message out to them? I don't I think there are many academics in political science and economics who don't take a traditional view. I think the problem is. It actually, if you go back, can radical ideas become mainstream? I was at, very active in the Labour Party in the 80s. I'd have been probably called the Corbyn incident. Mm -hmm. And you know, if you take all the people like Ely in the GLC, things that were extremely radical proposals, gender equality, gay rights and anti-racism, all were denounced by the mainstream media as loony left. That they're now mainstream. So I think main, ideas like new economics can become mainstream. The, prob and the problem is, you know, if you're... If you're, take for example the issue of Trump, if you're saying we're opposed, if you're a potential Prime Minister or Labour leader, and you say we, we, can't, we should abolish Trident, and we should, but what about the 20,000 jobs? To articulate 
a simple, short argument about they need to be retrained to produce more worthwhile goods and services in the 30-second interview is extremely difficult. So we have a media that wants soundbites, and to be honest, we have voters. I always hear this acronym, this story, voters want to hear the truth. No, they do not. The last thing voters want to hear is the truth. They want to hear something that makes them feel comfortable. So policymakers need to be more radical, but voters and electors do too. And I think that's why you're right. We need to continue the conversation, chip away, encourage critical thinking, more and more discussion like this. These issues are now coming onto the agenda in many ways, and they, do, and they will continue to do, but it's a big, big challenge. But Laurie, I mean, can change take place quickly, or is it a long process? Culture takes longer to change than institutions. I mean, how do you get change that can happen quickly? <laughs> well, it's very difficult, it's very difficult uh, to make it happen um, quickly. And I think there's, there's no sort of silver bullet here. I think there's a, a whole range of things. Some of them we've talked about, about having discussions, sort of developing, organising at a grassroots level. I do think there is another element here which I think uh, is quite important. Um, and that is it's the, the real, reality is today that many of the decisions that are made uh, or the things that inform people's opinions, the decisions are made by things like politicians and influence people's influence, opinions are influenced by the media. Um, and we, we are uh, trying and doing a bit more work as to trying to sort of penetrate these uh, institutions. Uh, so going into the sort of the heart of the statute and trying and also to try and get some of these ideas in there which is very difficult. For example, uh, we are doing work training uh, uh, MPs for example and we talked about money creation about how the banking system actually works, how the money creation actually works, monetary policy and that kind of thing which MPs don't have a clue about and yet they take decisions on it every day. So that, I think that is an important element of this that we haven't really talked about. Similarly, uh, media, I mean that, I mean the media today is it's astonishing, I'm sure we've talked about this all day. Um, but another thing is trying to get people uh, with these ideas comfortable uh, speaking out in the media, the opportunities to actually use these platforms to actually spread ideas, um, which again, we sort of have various training programs to get people who are building a new economy on the ground uh, into the media uh, to transfer to ideas. Which is the parliamentary Labour Party, your training. Sorry? This is the parliamentary Labour Party. Okay, listen, let's, what we're doing now is I've seen so many hands come up that let's just let the audience take over control a bit and you, everyone who wants to say something, say something. If you don't get your, your questions answered up here, um, don't worry, it's a chance for you to give your view. I'll, I'll come back to you if I can, but you already asked something, okay? Um, well, the system's changing. <coughs> um, how long it does it take? It depends on circumstances. In, in the right circumstances, a system can change overnight, very quickly. You, you see revolutions, you, you see um, um, uprisings, violent part, but taking the, the model from physics, water can turn into steam or ice very quickly given the right circumstances. Our task is to identify what circumstances have to flow together for the system to change overnight. Uh, plus, we must have a historical overview, a time, a time frame within which we are imagining the system change. We have to at least go back 500 years at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. 
in order to understand correctly what is happening here and now. Okay, and uh, gentlemen here, and then gentlemen over here. <laughs> Thank you. We've talked about capitalism tonight quite a lot, and we've all talked about the problems of capitalism, such as climate change, destruction of the environment, you know, people being on low wages, you know, why don't people give up their iPhones and stop buying so much stuff? And we've also talked about the solutions to capitalism, what we need to do, what we need to do to bring about a better society. In your opinion, will this new society still be called capitalism? Okay, I'll tell you what, I was going to ask them all the last question, what would your new economic society look like? So incorporate what you've said into that right at the end. Um, gentlemen here. Thank you, Francis. If I was being critical, I would say that I've heard very little new economic theory tonight. We've heard a lot about problems of the old economics. We've heard people saying, oh, Adam Smith, he didn't understand it, he got it wrong. Joseph Stiglitz, he's got it wrong. Uh, John Maynard Cain, he got it wrong. We've heard the government doesn't work, we shouldn't have governments. The banking doesn't work, we shouldn't have... We've heard very little practical explanation of how a better system would work. And this is what I'm really hoping that I'm going to hear from each of you. What is the key idea? Beyond just saying, hey, we need to be sustainable, because anybody can say, let's be sustainable. What we haven't heard, and I think it ties into the last question, will it be an evolution of capitalism? Is that what you're talking about? Because after all, capitalism has done wonderful things, despite its many problems. It's taken more people out of poverty in China over the last 50 years than any other corresponding thing in, in history. So will it be an evolution? Are you advocating that? Or are you practically advocating a root and branch reform? In which case, where are you getting this new theory from? Can we hear its details rather than just uh, having some nice slogans, please? Okay, that's the point of what was right at the end, because I think you're absolutely right. We've got to look at what the alternative is going to be, not just what is wrong with the present system, because we can all talk about that for ages. Um, someone else? Yeah, you, uh, you and then the two of you back there. I, I was just going to make the, the point about capitalism. There's a, a very good uh, talk by uh, David Harvey who mentioned that around about 1974 that capitalism went on strike in New York and uh, the outcome was uh, neoliberalism. And the point that was made earlier about neoliberalism working, I think the point is neoliberalism is doing exactly what it's meant to do. And um, what, just one extra comment I would like to make is from my uh, uh, humble observation, instead of always being the people at the bottom that have to make the changes and kick the doors down, I think until people in fairly senior positions start to actually take a chance, and what I mean is that people who can don't, it's a negative, but it's a very positive negative, that people in very powerful positions actually don't do what they can do will make a huge and major difference, and that's to come from people that have never done that. Okay, there are two gentlemen at the back. Hiya. Um, I've got a question for all the panellists, but I want to throw this open to everyone just as a thought process. Uh, it's a bit of a trick question, but if I was to ask the panellists what their net worth was, what would they say? Sorry, what was that? Uh, what's the panellist's net worth? It's a bit of a trick question, but... What's the panellist's net worth? Yes. Oh, okay. Um, right, the next gentleman. Uh, um, I was just wondering, um, 
what do you think would actually convince the institutions to change or to take up these new policies? I mean, just for example, the reality of a no-growth economy. I think I've heard um, some economists, um, even like the previous financial minister of South Africa, uh, addressing a, an investor uh, party for the two, some of the biggest banks for the developing world. And, and he was admitting to that reality and he was telling these bankers that, you know, after, the, after breakfast, Brexit, for example, um, you know, this is the new paradigm and that we have to uh, have an, an economics that is, or even that a banking system that serves to benefit people in the developing world as well. Um, so I was just wondering what you think okay. needs them. Yeah. Okay, let's take one or two more. Um, gentleman over there. Uh, thank you. I, I just came to listen, but uh, I, I have been forced to speak. Just one or two quick points. Firstly, solu um, solutions. I think meetings like this are the solution, but on a mass scale, globally. This is what is needed. Uh, however, I think the biggest enemy we have is time, actually. Uh, the, I, I, don't, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that we are on the Titanic. I mean, just listen to some of the things that were said today, if we look in the mirror. I, I like what Clive said. He mentioned state as terror. We've got to reflect on that. I mean, right now in Europe, there are t at least two states of emergencies, France and Turkey, if we include that as Europe. Um, so, you know, um, the point I'm making is, I think what's missing in this discussion is, uh, and the solution's there actually, the notion of eschaton, everything like this meeting will have an end, right? Whether you're a believer or disbeliever or whatever. I, 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 some thinkers out there, you know, from whatever perspectives and philosophy, believe that this system is doomed. It is, uh, it is disintegrating. It, you know, it's a death spiral. You know, there's many words out there. Now, if that is the case, are we taking the analysis and diagnosis of many contemporary thinkers seriously? I don't think we are. And uh, so the notion of eschaton and eschatology needs to be taken on seriously because uh, basically what we're talking about is collapse. Collapse, to keep it simple. And if the system is in a state of collapse and disintegration, and using fear, when you talk about fear, Clive, you're talking about, sorry, terror. If you distill it, you're talking about the use of fear. And that is rampant right now throughout Europe, if not internationally. And I would say the solution, since we're talking about solutions, no one's used the word or even thought about using the word moral. What is a moral political economy? And what is a moral community? And what is moral leadership? This debate is very relevant in the States right now. You know, is Clinton or Trump a good leader? Or should be asking, what is a moral leader? So that's it, really. And uh, this it brings me on to, and I'll stop, issues like repentance. That's not even been brought up today. The world is grossly unequal. It is killing the planet and people. Shouldn't we be putting on the agenda not just revolution, but repentance and building morally, moral leadership 
orientated communities. Okay, well, let's, let's ask the three speakers now to respond a bit to some of those. And let, let me just put, put, let me put that in the shell if I can to get you to respond to it. Don't take every point because you go on until 10 o'clock if you do. But the first question really then, I mean, if you could just say briefly, it's your question as well and yours. I mean, what will the new economy look like? How different is it? What's the analysis of that economy? What, how would you describe it to us? And secondly... Um, would it be based upon uh, a sort of a moral imperative like the gentleman mentioned at the back? And thirdly, how do we get to it? Have we got time? Are we facing a crisis of collapse? Um, how do we get there before that collapse happens? Or do we need a collapse in a sort of Buchanan anarchist way in order to recreate after in a world that's already incredibly dangerous? Um, how do we move forward? Those are sort of really big questions. And I'm, I'm asking you to do it briefly, which is a terrible thing to, ask, to have to ask you to do. But these are the points that have been raised. OK, Clive, you can start. <laughs> Thank you very much. I've got the answer here in the final. I mean, I did actually, contrary to what was suggested, put forward four, three practical big ideas. One is tax the commons, tax land, tax resources, and remove all the privatisation of knowledge, nature, and all the rest of it. That's the first step to actually provide a revenue base. Um, distributing a citizen's dividend disassociates the means to life from work, which means that people will then have the opportunity to think, participate. If you go back pre-industrial revolution, people worked 15 hours, the rest of the time they enjoyed themselves. It was only by depriving the means to life that they, they went into work. And Hugh referred to the work ethic. A social environment can develop outside work, particularly if you're bringing up your own kids in the community, you're helping intergenerationally, there is care. We can recreate communities. That's what the future looks like, recreating communities. It is communities that are atomized by the political economy and the state. They take your children. They, they disassociate us from every aspect of our lives and try to corporatize it, statify it, whatever. We need communities to take back what needs to be in communities. We are blessed with technology. We can do so much more. But the first thing we need to recognize is that we don't need other people to do it for us. There's a, there's a guy called Frederick Leloux who's written a book called Reinventing Organizations. And there's a YouTube you can watch if you don't want to read the book. Basically, we've been through a progression of management development. It started by command and control through slavery, slavery and moved to more open, collaborative, collegiate sort of processes that we see today. The next step is non-hierarchical. There are organizations like Björtsog providing health care in Holland, which is non-hierarchical. They work in teams, they provide better service, they provide holistic service. And as Lulu says, it is complex tasks which are best suited to self-organization. We need to lose this this belief in hierarchy and experts and authority because they are only experts in what they know and most of them know very little. But how do we get there and can we get there in time? Um, we're getting there. 
the fact that we're talking about citizens' income, the fact that we're talking about land value tax, we just need to talk more and we need to get this out. The, the change will not come from above. You're wasting your time knocking on the door. Rothschilds controls the Bank of England, the Federal Reserve, the Bank of International Settlements. That drives the global economy. It is not going to come from above because all those people are bought. They're elevated cattle. We've been farmed since civilization began, and this is just an extension of the farm. So don't rely on the elevated cattle. They're not on your side. It is us at the bottom. We can actually turn things around, okay. but we need to believe in our own ability to do so. Okay, but also I'll say... I, I, also, I think in the, the questions that we're asked implicitly is, you know, what's the new theory underlying the new economics? I mean, is it a, a theory based upon the fact that we create an economics on the basis of what we need rather than what we are told we want? And how does that uh, translate into an economic model? Um, I mean, how does the new society look to you in that sense? Well, first of all, in terms of the change, I don't, I'm not a revolutionary. Otherwise, I wouldn't be a member of the Labour Party. Uh, change has to go progressively, in my view. And uh, if we get into a debate about we need to abolish capitalism to have a new economics and more sustainable world, I think we'll end up having a very destructive debate. We have to start from where we are. People have made the point that men and women have created, by their ingenuity, have done many, many good things in the world, as well as many, many bad things. And we can build on those those good things. And what does it look like? Well, are we talking about Britain or the world? Can we have the kind of economics and society we want in Britain independently? That's the big challenge, isn't it? It's, how do we do it? If I was looking at Britain, I'd say a, a potential model for Britain would be to build what we've already got a much more devolved Britain with much greater support for communities. That means a reinvigorated local government and local democracy with resources there to support communities, to support companies and individuals that want to grow companies and jobs that benefit the environment and protect society. We will need some kind of, we need an industrial society because we're going to still have to create jobs. We're going to have to create jobs to people. But, it, but I don't think we, I, I don't want to wait until the system collapses. Because if the system collapses, there's no benefits to the people in need of most. When systems collapse, chaos reigns. And only the powerful and the strong and the, and the nimble of foot benefit from that. So the, the, there isn't a magic. We, we need to build on what we've got. Carbon transition time movements, carbon free technology, tackling climate change. We need to engage much more with the global community. There are, there are, some people may dismiss it, but at the global UN level, despite its faults, there has been progress. I mean, the new and emerging sustainable development goals aren't perfect, but they're better than we had 20 years ago. These, you know, all my background in political science has taught me that. There's no one blueprint. When, when students ask me questions, what is socialism? It depends on what you mean by socialism. What are morals? Depends on what you mean by morals. All these things are very, very relative. And it's incredibly hard. There is no perfect, clear blueprint. Okay. But a system based on, at its core, social justice, that has to be the primary objective, a system of economics and politics based on social justice. And 
Sure, it has to come from the bottom, but it also has to come from the top. I'm a great believer in political movements. If you go to the Arab Spring, say for example in Egypt, there's fantastic demonstrations in the main square there. You know, Mubarak was thrown out of power. What happened? Those young people, those revolutionaries, all went back to their homes. And what happened? The two organisations, the Muslim Brotherhood and Mubarak's henchmen, took power. You need. You don't just need social movements, you need political parties to deliver change. So it's bottom up and top down. Okay, but, but, but Laurie, I, 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 I still get this feeling that the points raised haven't been fully answered. I mean, if you, you know, the neoclassical system had a whole theory behind it. You had Ricardo and Marshall and, and so on, the 19th century development series. They were alternatives developed by Marx. Then you had Keynes who produced the Keynesian view, which was the land-led theory. What would the new economics be? Is there a theory behind it? Are we just talking about, you know, this project, transitional towns, that project? Or do we have a grand vision, which is a theory? So I think, so clearly the, the question of where does this all end up, it's the million-dollar question. My own personal view is that the talk about sort of capitalism and socialism or the ism, and the sort of search for a sort of unified theory of everything, uh, doesn't actually work and will never work. Um, and although we have today we have a dominant uh, ideology that, that, that creates most theories, we have to bear in mind that, that there are currently other um, you know, we don't have a pure capitalist economy. You know, the NHS, when it was set up, at least in its original conception, uh, the way it runs is, is, is socialism in action. It is free at the point of use. It's not based on how much money you have. It's not, at least initially, it wasn't based on a system of markets and private property. Um, so this sort of unified theory of everything that will apply in all areas of the economy all the time, I think, just doesn't uh, work. And in terms of what does it look like, well, uh, you know, in my view of a, of a future society, will there still be a role for markets and private property? I think, I think that works quite well in some areas of the economy. You know, restaurants, you know, bars works quite well. Does it work in all, of the, all areas of the economy? No. Does it mean reclaiming a concept of the commons? I completely agree, I think it absolutely does. Uh, particularly when we talk about natural uh, resources. Not only just the natural resources that we, that we commonly talk about, things like you know, oil, land, things like that, but actually um, things like the atmosphere, uh, for example, um, you know, one idea that's been tossed around is um, by having a, the atmosphere held in trust, uh, an asset trust by everyone uh, in society. And if anyone wants to put anything into it, they can pay a charge into that trust. And everyone receives a dividend out of that. So it's about expanding the notion of the commons uh, within that as well. But I also think that you know, things are still going to need to be made and produced, there's still going to need to be models of enterprise. Uh, what I'd like to see is much more democratic models of enterprise. Uh, we talked about the faults of, of uh, shareholder capitalism, much more co-ops uh, and mutuals. Um, coupled then with a, a decoupling of income from work, I think that the way uh, the world's going for automation and the rest of it, that should be embraced, but we, we, do, we will see a decoupling of that uh, shorter working week. Uh, and focus on all the things we've been talking about that are actually important. So focusing away from just sort of targeting narrow economic growth, but targeting things that actually matter. I think the key point for me is that this unified theory of everything, uh, I think we'll be searching in vain to try and find it. Um, and really that you know life is more the system is much more complicated than that. We need to be looking at things on a on a case by case basis. Okay. Um, right. We we tend to finish at about 8.15, so we've got a bit of time for a couple more questions. 
I thought you just asked the point about the value of the You can ask a question. No, I'm just about the, 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 the basic income. In terms of how does it happen, wasn't there a referendum in Switzerland a few weeks ago? Yes, there was. And it was absolutely slaughtered, wasn't it? The proposal went down by about 80%. Didn't it? it was in the evening standard today. I'm not saying it's wrong, I'm saying how do we yeah. get but, but that's a part. that's part of the question, how do we make the changes that we think mm. we want. But let, let's get some people in that haven't spoken, this gentleman. Thank you. So economics as if people matter, there's clearly uh, a sense that the well-being of people is important. Uh, not only the physical material needs, but also their mental health as well. In economics, or any system of economics, you're going to have people and you're going to have money, I think, unless we're getting rid of the idea of money as well. And an idea I don't really hear much of is about the relationship that people have with money. And I wonder if in the system of the future that you imagine, there would be a better relationship between people and money, because a lot would be affected based on that. I think there's a lot of negative uh, results in the society we live in because the relationship that was a question about how much do you make or the fact that we can't even talk about that suggests we have some real deficiencies in our relationships with money. And. Um, I think there's something I would like to hear you guys comment on. Okay. Thank you. Um, anyone else? This gentleman here. We might get to Thank you. you. I don't know. <laughs> um, two, uh, two questions. One is, um, uh, wouldn't it be fairly easy for us to organize, as far as uh, public sector expenditure is concerned, i.e. the spend of our tax, to organize surveys, as they do in Switzerland, uh, of the cake? So you ask everybody, how much they'd like to spend on Trident and the defense system and war, as opposed to social services and so on. That would be, if that caught on, which of course it would be squashed really easily probably, it might make the um, people in charge uh, respond to that sort of kind of public uh, uh, sentiment or set of sentiments. Be very difficult to plan for, I, I know, but uh, it would be useful. Second question. The second question is, we talk about uh, capitalism as an evil, but as uh, Clive alluded, it's really only a very small number of people running the system and milking it for all they can get, particularly the Rothschilds and uh, the 0.001% of the population of this world who control, I think it's something like 80% of the total wealth. Now, taking those people to court would be something that we could do as individuals. Uh, even um, the House of Commons is talking about taking Mr... What's his name? Uh, thank you to court and uh, Lehman Brothers. Uh, the the nineties, the, the two thousand and seven crash is now referred to as the Lehman crash. So uh, you know why aren't more of those people uh, in uh, prison? Okay, uh, let's take someone else. You've already asked a question. You haven't, have you? Thank you. Uh, I tend to agree with uh, this side of the panel, if uh, if I can put it that way, and uh, and the and the views expressed by a gentleman earlier about not everything is bad with what we have now. There is so so yes, we have gross inequality. Yes, there are many things to be fixed by go along with the idea of evolution rather than revolution. Uh, John Maynard Keynes was certainly right, and he was certainly wrong, as you said, and that's the proof of the pudding that. The, of the other thing that you said, Laurie, which is that 
we don't know what the perfect system is, so let's not try and invent it and then impose it by revolution. So I'm, I could go on about that, but I won't because I think a lot of the points have been made already. So I've got a specific question I'd like to ask. I'm sorry, I can't remember your name. Clive. Clive oh, you were Clive, sorry. <laughs> yes, that's right. Um, which is, uh, I like all the little ideas, or the big ideas within the overall idea about the commons, about basic, premium, about, uh, basic income, things like that. Uh, I'm sold on those, uh, that, that they should be tested, etc. What I absolutely cannot take, or don't understand rather, is your idea that we can do away with rule and rulers, because I wonder how this thing gets, hap gets, gets to happen, gets managed, gets overseen, gets to uh, correct the gross excesses of the people that we view as excessively gross now. And so it's a very specific question, but I'm sitting here quite angry about your, uh, countering your anger and passion to get rid of rulers, because I really don't want a revolution that's going to create more unintended consequences than we can possibly predict. Okay, and we'll take one more rather than ask uh, this lady over here. And then I'm sorry, that's... <laughs> Uh, I'm interested, uh, I didn't hear anything about, um, kind of, uh, um, uh, um, Ayita Sen wrote a book about animal spirits in economy, and that people make decisions and be a driven behavioral economics. And I think we all participate and enable a system um, that drives the current economy and economic uh, principles. And, and basically, I wonder if in your new approach and your new theories, you take into account that people make choices and about bounded rationality, and then we have all egotism. So I think what I'm hearing is, and this kind of um, is kind of, uh, there's a group of people who own uh, the riches, and they are not the good ones, and there's a community, they want to be the good ones. And that's, for me, a quite moralistic view, because I think we all participate, and we all have accountability what's happening right now. And I wonder what your view is, how you tame what I call the human spirits that okay. are in let, the market as well. That is the very last point, because I think it's a good one to sum up with. But let, let's Clive answer that first one very briefly, because we want to do it by 8.15. <laughs> uh, I mean, do, you, you want to get rid of rulers and rules. I mean, how, how, how is it in an anarchic system? How does it work? Okay. Um, there's a lot of, there's four and a half years research and work gone into this, so there's a lot of detail that sits behind what I said this evening, and I can only urge you to go and explore not just critical thinking, but the sort of ideas that I mentioned, the, the ideas of Frederick Leloux, for example. And this ties in to some extent with this. Um, the thing is that we, this ties in with what the lady was saying, that basically our behavior, we assume, governs a lot of the things that we do. What we fail to recognize is the extent to which our behavior is, in, is guided by incentives and penalties. And you only have to look at the corruption within the political system to know that those people who do these bad things, Philip Green or the expenses scandal, whatever you, you know, you pick any instance of corruption, it is not the person themselves that is inherently corrupt. It is that they find themselves in a position where the incentives and penalties force them to make certain choices. And this is a product of the overall system. This is not human nature. Human nature is perverted. In spite of all the incentives, the people in this room, 
have come together to try and find answers. And in spite of all the incentives, people go out of their way to help each other, even though all the incentives are to do the opposite. Every incentive is to be selfish and, and sort of egotistical. But in spite of that, people do it. My contention is that it's the system that has created this. In terms of dissolving the system, the way we're going to dissolve it, and it is a revolution, but it's not a revolution that involves blood. It's a revolution that involves thinking. And I can, I can tell a long story, but I don't have time for. But basically, it is conversations on a, on a grassroots level that open people's eyes to possibilities. And things like basic income will give people time to do that. The bureaucracy of life today is such that people don't have time to think. And when they get time to think, they just want to switch off. So they'll take drugs, watch television, do whatever they like, because they're just so frigging exhausted. So if people are given time and headspace, we can begin to think about how we do this better. Okay, and, can we, and two points for you, if both of you would take it. Um, it's you know, not satisfactory, I know. Yeah. Not enough. Okay, I, know. I mean, two points for you. One is, how important is it to measure our, our, our standards in society by net worth, which doesn't include monetary things? Do we need a new measurement to do that? And what do you think about the idea that's put, put forward about actually having a lots of referenda, if you like, to decide how the cake's going to be uh, chopped up and does that really take government away from it? How do you create cohesion when you do that? Just just pick up on that yeah. over there about um, being a couple of things tonight about how the, the, the pie is spent effectively. I think just one sort of practical thing that touches on this sort of theme that's already happening uh, and, and I think it's be interesting to see it grow and develop a bit more um, is uh, sort of participatory, participatory budgeting which there's been a bit of this in South, South America and also it's a council in Scotland that has been trying this as well, which is uh, the money that, that councils have, so this is at a local level, uh, a proportion of that money can be spent. Uh, citizens are invited to come in and discuss and debate and democratically decide um, how that is spent. Um, so that's something that's happening places just now, um, and you know, there's quite a lot of information you can read on it. So I think in terms of that to me seems one of the more practical ways to try and get these sort of principles in. And the net worth argument. Mm -hmm. um, so what was the net worth argument? Well, you know, you don't measure our economic activity just by monetary needs and goods and services. You look at, for example, people do housework, they do all sorts of things that aren't measured. You know, someone mentioned the prostitution when they was put it when when they put it in, everything went up. There are lots of things in society that we don't measure, which is part of our network that we do. Voluntary activity. Yeah. So what, what should we be measuring? Because I think clearly the, the things we measure now aren't enough and the, the point about prostitution and stuff, that's happened in the UK as well and, and drugs as well. Um, but I think we probably have more out of it than the entire <laughs> Well, yeah. Um, <laughs> well, but, let's ask you what we should be measuring. What do you think we should be measuring? Well, well net worth, I think at the moment, again, I don't think you can have such a definitive measure, but at the moment, uh, the general public measure people's net worth. They'll say nurses do a great job, so much better than merchant bankers, doctors. People are in intuitively all the time measuring somebody else's net worth, aren't they? All the time. I don't, I don't, I'm not sure what value that would give. But in terms of, kind of the bit about um, 
Yeah, I, I did some research on participatory budgeting that started in Brazil, didn't it, Puerto Alegre. Very small scale in local councils. It was a particularly strong when there was lots of neighbourhood uh, local governments. Most of that was abolished by the Conservatives when they came to power. Uh, but you, one possible start, because on the campaign, isn't it, to say that the uh, money you spend for national insurance should be hypothecated towards the health service. Yeah. That, that might be a starting point, but it, it always concerns me when you start putting these things out to direct democracy. Again, it's the clarion call of the powerful and the articulate that tends to subsume the others. So you end up with reductions in services and lower rates of taxation. Okay. Okay, because we're getting very close to the end now. 30 seconds each, your point to me. You know, the, bar, the moral basis of who we are as people, our accountability, lots of economic theories from, you know, Adam Smith onward based upon views of what human nature was, who we are deep down. Um, what's your view of human nature that can make the new economics work? 30 seconds each. <laughs> <laughs> Adam Smith dealt with this problem. Most of the people who actually developed economic systems started from those premises. Who we are? Well, I think just on the, on the morality point, I think probably some point out is that this is something that changes over time, self-evidently over time. I mentioned earlier, you go back to the things that were perfectly tolerable uh, years ago uh, as part of the economic system, not to mention slavery and other things. And, and now clearly aren't. And in future, I've no doubt that there'll be things we tolerate now that we don't in future. So I think this is a, the, the sort of moral foundations of society, if that's what we're sort of getting at, I think, is something that is collectively uh, generated over time. And it's not something that sort of I can sort of would like to come up with and try and impose unilaterally, I feel like. Um, so, so yes, I think this is a this is a fluid thing that, that evolves over time and circumstances. And 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 Hugh? human nature talking about well, yeah. yeah, I mean you know Thomas Hobbes thought if we had an anarchic society it would be you know everyone would be killing each other. John mm. Locke thought there was natural law that would mm. help us to uh, our, our human nature be harnessed. Other people thought we were like God, we're not optimistic and we could recreate the future without any bad effects. What well, I have a problem with human nature as a socialist. I have an optimistic view about human nature, but I was born a Catholic, so therefore I'm of original <laughs> sin. So I have a negative view of human nature. But I, well, I think on a basic level, relating morals to human rights, I'm a very firm believer in a universal system of human rights. Human rights are universal. And there are no relative human rights. Human rights are human rights. And there's a, there's a canon of human rights which we've agreed to, and they, I think, need to be adhered to more, and they would form more of a future society than we all want to believe in. Okay, and in your system, you are very optimistic about human beings. I mean, in your system, you've got to have a lot of faith in human beings. You don't take the Thomas Hobbes view where life is nasty, brutish, and short if you go down the lines that you want to go down. Life is nasty, brutish, and short within the current political, system, political economy. Adam Smith had a stylized view of money, which was debunked by David Graeber. Um, Laurie mentioned his bullshit jobs essay earlier. I would urge you to read Debt the First 5,000 Years, because I think we have much more to learn from anthropologists about political economy than we do from economists. And if you go back to pre-literate societies, there was 
there was this generosity of spirit which was engendered within communities that was natural. It is the system that has created this competitive, dynamic economy of scarcity. In a cooperative, collaborative, co-creative world, abundance will flourish. And until we recognize that that is the fundamental, if you like, flaw in our thinking, it's the system which's driving us. It is not we as individuals. Everybody in this room thinks they are a nice person, and they probably know nice people. The truth is, we're all nice people, but we're incentivized to be nasty to each other because that's how we get ahead. Can I just okay. One final Very quick. Just, uh, laws legislation and laws are crucial to... I remember Linda Bellis, who was an anti-racist activist in the Labour Party. She said once in the meeting, was that I'm not totally concerned about what people think, it's what they do that matters as much as what they think. And so laws and public policy are crucial to this. They shape the way people think. And just one perfect example, in Ireland, 20 years ago, you know, homosexuality was illegal. Gays were treated with contempt. Now, first country in the world by a plebiscite to actually sanction same-sex marriage. Okay. And that was done, you know, that was laws The more laws you have in a country, the more corrupted it is. Okay. The discussion, the discussion is going, it's going to go on and on. Sorry. Listen, let's, let, let, let's leave it there. We've come to the end of our time. It's been an interesting discussion. It could go on and on. There are lots of questions to ask. Please stay around for a little while if you want to network and talk to each other, talk to the speakers. The next series we have on this, on, on ethics and politics, will be in four months' time, three months' time, um, on, uh, on ethics and education, which is the next one. We don't know who the speaker's going to be for that yet because we haven't got them, but that's going to be the next one. And in Global Net 21, we have regular meetings all the time. If you look at our website on Meetup, you'll see a whole list of our upcoming events, both online and face-to-face -face like this. So I want to thank all the three speakers for doing it and facing some difficult questions at times and, and fending with them very well. And all of you for your contribution and for asking the difficult questions as well, because they're the ones that count. So thanks a lot. <laughs>